This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's a great question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types with Eric Beatner and S.W. Louder. Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. Steve, you know, it's been a few weeks, but we are back. So tell us, who's with us today? Well, Eric, today we check in with Laura McHugh, who turned out to be more competitive about her appearance on Writer Types than we thought she was going to be. I really blew everyone away. I totally won. It's like they weren't even trying to compete. And Reese Hurst shares his impression of what it's like behind the scenes at Writer Types. It really is a lawless, criminal place. Plus, we hear from the freshman class of Agora Books, the new imprint from Polis. But first, Steve, you read anything good this summer? Eric, it won't surprise you to hear that I read a lot of nonfiction books about bands and albums. (laughs) From the Pixies to the Beatles to the Shangri-Las. Wow, people are still writing books about the Beatles. Yeah, well, yeah, I think about 400 new Beatles books come out every day in America. <laughs> but, but more germane to this conversation, I am three quarters of the way through The Warehouse by Rob Hart, and I am blown away. This is the kind of book that I usually read to get away from the thriller genre. And I am just thrilled to see somebody who I consider a friend of the show and our friend really spreading his wings in a really interesting way. I mean, this is near future dystopian. There are some thriller uh, elements to it, but there have been a lot of times where I'm reading this where I felt like I was reading the Amazon version of The Circle by David Eggers. It yeah. feels like literary fiction to me. Absolutely. And, and I'm very impressed. And and uh, I was so excited to read this that I actually read an honest-to-goodness physical book, Eric. Paper? Dead trees? My iPad just kind of looks at me with a frown on its face from across the room while I'm holding this abomination. <laughs> Uh, what have you been reading? Well, uh, my year-long quest to finish all of Ken Bruin's Jack Taylor series continues, and I am very near the end. Uh, and then right when I was feeling like, oh, I'm going to be very accomplished, I'm going to get to the end of book 14, I saw the announcement that his next one comes out in just a couple months. So, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I'm, I'm loving uh, really doing this deep dive into a series. I don't think I've ever read this deep into a series outside of maybe the Parker books. But I certainly haven't read anything this back to back to back to back. So I'm on like my eighth in a row in about three months. So loving that. Uh, And then, you know, I don't read very much historical fiction, mystery or otherwise. And and it's not by choice. It just sort of happens. I kind of realized that. And I was like, hmm. But I bought uh, a book by Patty Hirsch called The Devil's Half Mile uh, when Patty came out to read at the last noir at the bar. And this was really intriguing. It takes place in 1799 New York City. And it is a thriller and and a very, you know, on the ground portrayal of what life was like. And obviously I can't speak from experience, but it seems incredibly well researched to the point where don't you love a book that has a glossary in the back of all the slang (laughs) terms? 
You know I do, Eric. You know I flip straight to the glossary I, in the back. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so how does Patty Hirsch stack up on your newly formed Bruin scale? <laughs> well, you know, oddly enough, he's also Irish, so uh, I think he gets uh, he gets two Bruins up. If that is anything, is that a thing? It is now. If you say it in a podcast, it's a thing. Well, you know, another one of my favorite reads this year uh, happens to be written by our first guest. First up is author Laura McHugh, who recently published her third novel, The Wolf Wants In. For technical reasons, you had to go it alone on this one, Eric, and I've got to tell you, I am still jealous. Oh, you were missed, Steve, and uh, you would have enjoyed it. We had a great conversation about uh, her new novel, uh, writing about the Midwest, and of course, pie tasting. Oh, what kinds of pies does she like? Stay tuned and listen. Well, Laura, thank you for joining us on Writer Types. I know we, we've uh, talked to you briefly in the past when we've been out at conferences, but uh, it's good to sit down for a full interview on the occasion of your new novel, The Wolf Wants In, which was fantastic. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to hear that. Now, the this book, it's about uh, a dog named Gravy, and there's some people in it, I think. <laughs> He's a small part, yeah. <laughs> I guess my, my first and most important question is, uh, is Gravy uh, the dog based on a dog you know? <laughs> well, yeah, he is. Uh, he's different, but he's based on my brother's dog. Oh, in wow. When my brother passed away, his dog was still alive. We were able to take him and take turns kind of having him with us. And it was nice. We had him for about a year after that. Was this, in a way, the inspiration for the novel? Is this where it all began? Well, it's it's somewhat inspired by my brother's death uh, several years ago. He passed away very suddenly, uh, inexplicably. We still don't really know the cause of death. And that was something that inspired me to want to write about someone, losing someone close to them and not really having those answers and having to kind of dig and figure out what happened. Wow. Well, like your previous two novels, uh, this book takes place in uh, in rural Midwestern America, which is where you grew up. So we've never talked about this. Tell me about young Laura. What, what was uh, what was young Laura like running around uh, in, in rural Missouri? Yeah, uh, we moved down to the Ozarks when I was like seven or eight. It's kind of isolated where we were, just a really small town. There was no library, which you can imagine is traumatic for a kid who loves to read. So <laughs> that was probably the worst part. Uh, yeah, but it's just, it's such a unique place. It's different from any other place I've been. And so it's kind of fun for me to write about it. Just, you know, that landscape, that sense of foreboding and isolation, just being out in the middle of nowhere kind of contributes for me to a story. Well, your characters uh, in all three of your novels, which I've truly loved all three of them, uh, but you write these people that are, I think are, are so fully realized, but I think there's a sense of almost melancholy to most of your characters. I mean, yes, they're going through traumas like, you know, murders and unexplained deaths and things. But I mean, would you say that there's almost a theme in some of your books about, you know, healing or repairing damaged relationships? Or am I am I being too uh, like college professor about this? <laughs> no, no, I think you're exactly right. And with all of my books, they're about crimes. You know, they center around crimes, but they're really 
I'm always writing about families. I am the youngest of eight kids. And so, you know, kind of growing up being an observer of all these relationships. And for me, I'm always trying to get to the characters, you know, in the story, it's about a crime, but it's the characters I'm really concerned about their relationships with others and their family and how complicated those can be, especially when a terrible crime is involved. So as the youngest of eight, were all of your siblings looking down on you and like, oh, that's cute. She wants to write stories. Oh, little Laura. Or or were they very supportive along the way? Well, uh, the stories I was writing were kind of violent and dark. I mean, even from when I was younger. So I remember one of the stories I turned in in junior high for an English class. It was about a girl who was going out in the woods with her dad, you know, cutting wood, and she murdered him with a chainsaw, right? So I turned that in for class. My mom reads it, and she was kind of disturbed because every weekend I had to go out and cut wood with my dad out in the woods. (laughs) A little bit bit worried about that. Uh, But back then, the counselor did not call you in if you were talking about horrible things. It It was totally fine. But yeah, my siblings, they, you know, I think they were supportive. I don't think any of us really knew I would really make it as a writer, but I think they were all kind of supportive that I that I like to write and they would read my stories and things like that. So were you always uh, like, like, oh yeah, Laura, though, she, she's the dark one. We, did you dress all in black and, and <laughs> wear a lot of eyeliner? <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, I, you know, it was the early 90s down in the Ozarks and there were not goth people. That was not a thing, but I dyed my hair black and I, you know, I did all of that but really, I mean, people who meet me in person now, it's like, I tend to be a pretty happy, friendly person. So sometimes they'll read the book and then they meet me in person and they're like, well, that's really strange. You know, you seem, you seem pretty normal. <laughs> so I get, I get that a lot. Very similar to Lee Child. I'm going to compare you here. Uh, you started writing when you lost your job. So now that you don't have that fear of earning an income hanging over you and sort of driving you, what motivates you now to keep writing? Well, I would say that need for an income is still there very much hanging over any writer's head. So I'm always trying to write the best thing that I can. I want to try to sell books. I want to try to make a career and make a living. But the other part of it is I like to write. I know we writers complain a lot about writing, you know, that it's not so easy. It could be really hard, but it's really the only thing I can imagine doing for a job that I really deep down love and care about. So I think you don't mind working so hard at it and working long hours and things if, if you enjoy it, because I've certainly had jobs I did not enjoy as much. And your life is just a little bit worse and a little less full if you're not kind of enjoying what you're doing. So I hope I get to keep doing it. Well, I have to ask, what was the worst job that you ever had? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, there were a lot. I worked in food service a lot oh. you know, earlier on, and I was I was employee of the month at McDonald's. I mean, I oh <laughs> seriously, you know, my parents always said, you know, you're not above any job. You know, no job is beneath you, and just you know, do the best at what you're doing. So that's a very Midwestern uh, work ethic, right there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. No, no job is beneath you. But now uh, on on your resume, uh, or uh, if you're touting your achievements, is it ITW award winner and then employee of the month is right under that? Where does that rank? <laughs> well, right below that is a champion pie taster. I recently oh. won a pie tasting competition where I had to guess all of the flavors of these mystery pies. 
And I really blew everyone away. I totally won. It's like they weren't even trying to compete. So <laughs> that is, that's going right up there. That's important to me. So. Was, was there a winning pie that nobody else could get that you nailed? Yes. There was a pie that was some kind of cranberry silk. It was terrible. It was a terrible pie. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you took one bite of this terrible pie and you were like, oh, that terrible taste is cranberry. Yes. Yes, I was very proud. It was hilarious. I was actually so proud to win this. It was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've uh, you've experienced the glamour of being a successful novelist and and uh, obviously many other accolades, <laughs> um, yeah. you've won thriller awards. You know, you've been to New York City. You've been on book tours. You've been to writing conferences all over. I mean, are you still that same Midwestern gal? Or do you have to now sort of reach into a, a little research and kind of dig a little deeper into your past to get to the kind of characters that you write? No, um, it's funny. I People tell me a lot, too. They're like, well, you are just the same. You really haven't changed. And I, I don't feel like I have. Yeah, I don't have any trouble reaching down into those dark, creepy, small town characters. And that's just the kind of thing that I think about all the time. Yeah, I, everything I write is pretty much set in the Midwest, and I don't see that changing. Do you think that there's a, a, an increasing uh, appetite for stories about the Midwest? I mean, because I, I, I myself was born in Iowa, and I've written several books set in Iowa and in, in the Midwest, and and it's it's very underrepresented. I mean, I think that you know you have southern fiction that gets sort of its own section when we people talk about especially crime novels like oh there's you know southern grit noir and all this kind of stuff but the midwest is kind of ignored yeah i mean i think that's changing and i wrote an essay about that for crime reads and it was kind of about growing up in the rural midwest and not really seeing my life and my surroundings reflected in the pop culture we had you know mark twain books and that's about it, you know, and those were 100 years old. There was not a lot that I was seeing. So of course, when I discovered Daniel Woodrell years later, um, I was thrilled to see that. And I really do think with this surge in the rural noir, these places are a little bit exotic to people who have never been to the Midwest. It's kind of interesting to see this different way of life. Just the same that I might enjoy reading a book, you know, set in New York, a place I'm not that familiar with. I think people like to read about this area. And so I do think you'll see more of that as this sort of grit lid and all of that is is coming up. Well, we know that uh, you struggled with the, the title of this book and uh, hopefully writer types helped out a little bit to, to zero in and finally let you land on The Wolf Wants In, which was the yeah. one that you wanted. Yes. How much of a struggle, how tense did it get with the publisher when, <laughs> when they were trying to force something else on you? Yeah, well, they didn't really like The Wolf Wants In as a title, but every single time they've wanted to change it and kind of a similar thing happened. They said, well, you know, could you do something else? We don't really like this title. And I came up with something else. I'm struggling to remember exactly what it was, but I was going through my revisions and I kind of wove this other title into the story a little bit. I felt like, I was thinking, okay, this will work. And I turn it in and they read it and they get back to me and they go, eh, you, you know what, just go back to that other one. I think we like that other one. <laughs> they let me go back to Wolf. And usually it's just, they run out of time to come up with another title and I never come up with anything better, but. <laughs> Really appreciate you guys helping me. You guys helped a lot. It was nice oh, well. to through. Well, I think if you, you've so far you have three books with three great titles that are perfectly appropriate to the books, despite the fact there are no actual wolves in this book. I think 
There may, maybe you should put like a sticker on the front or something to warn readers. <laughs> no wolves within. <laughs> Eric, that was an excellent interview. I mean, it was missing a certain something. I can't really put my finger on it. <laughs> what? I, I, don't, I thought I asked everything that was pertinent. I asked follow-up questions. I don't know. There was just, it didn't seem quite up to par with what uh, you might come to expect from like a writer types situation. You know, like great, great job. Just missing that thing that takes it over the top. That, that extra dash of personality and wit. Well, I was talking about the wolves. There were no wolves in her book. <laughs> oh, oh I, thought, I thought you were talking about you. Well, Eric, <laughs> is that really what you think of me? No, not at all. We wanted to tell you about a podcast that we think writer types listeners would be interested in. Mystery Rats Maze podcast features short stories and first chapters of novels read not by the authors themselves, but by professional actors who, it turns out, Steve, are pretty darn good at it. So to get your dose of short fiction and maybe find some authors who might be new to you, check out Mystery Rats Maze at podbean.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And Steve, I know we're always looking for new authors and uh, love hearing some short stories. Yeah, but I got to say, they might have a way cooler name for their podcast than we do. It is awesome. Mystery Rats Maze is both a fantastic podcast name and a great name for like a progressive metal band and an awesome tongue twister. Mystery Rats Maze. Check it out. Well, Steve, you know, we love it when a new publisher comes on the scene. And the newest kid on the block in crime fiction is Agora Books, an imprint of Polis Books. We gave our unpanel today to the editor of Agora, Chantelle Amy Osman, and let her and several of her authors explain why now is the right time for an imprint focused on diversity. Hey, Writer Types listeners, this is Chantal Amy Osman, editor of Agora Books. Agora is the first imprint from Polis Books, one of the leading independent publishers of crime fiction in the United States. Crime fiction has always served, from the very inception of the genre, as a spotlight on issues of moral and social justice, shining a light onto people and portions of our culture that tend to go overlooked. With this ethos in mind, our imprint features crime novels which explore society, economy, politics, culture, race, and gender in unique and different ways from a roster of authors of varying backgrounds. I'd like to say a big thank you to Steve and Eric for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about ourselves with you. Now, let me throw it to the authors from our inaugural line, John Vircher, Patricia Shanae Smith, and Tori Eldridge, whose debut novels will be available this fall. Hi, my name is John Vircher and my debut novel is called Three-Fifths. Right now is the right time for Agora Books because we're at a time in our history when, more than ever, diversity needs to be more than a buzzword or part of a soundbite. Whether it's in politics or publishing, now is the time to stop talking about opening doors. It's time to start kicking them in. Agora is doing just that. Crime fiction is a means to address the ills of our society and focus on the injustices suffered by marginalized communities. Agora is giving voice to the voiceless, providing opportunities for those writers who might otherwise never have the chance to share their words. What's up? My name is Patricia and my debut novel is called Remember. 
right now is the right time for Agora Books because honestly, I feel like people are listening to women today, to black women for that matter, like myself. And that just wasn't the case in the past, for me at least. Growing up as a black woman in a white neighborhood with depression and anxiety, I was completely invisible and felt alone. Kind of like Portia, my protagonist. And remember, we both struggled with mental illness and didn't really know what to do because no one was really talking about it. Jump to 2019, there's so much help out there now, so many resources readily available for people struggling, and young girls are reaching out more today. And so Agora is giving me the opportunity to be the person I needed growing up, and together in today's political climate, we can actually make a difference, I believe, and I'm super stoked to be on this journey with them. Aloha, my name is Tori Eldridge, and my debut novel is called The Ninja Daughter. Right now is the right time for Agora Books for a couple of reasons. The audience at large is eager for new stories, different stories, stories that take us out of our comfort zone and familiarity and introduce us to new cultures, new communities, new perspectives. At the same time, there are readers of color who want stories that reflect our lives, where hungry for heroes and protagonists that come from our own communities and that we can relate to. So protagonists like Portia Willows from Remember or Bobby Saracino from Three Fists or Lily Wong from The Ninja Daughter. These are intriguing and uncommon characters and Agora Books is providing the opportunity for us to share them and giving the readers an opportunity to enjoy them. Well, that uh, is already an impressive list of authors for their freshman class there. And it sure does sound like the time is right for Agora Books. So I am really excited to read some of those titles. Yeah, I am too. And, you know, when I heard that Chantel was going to be involved and that Jason and Polis Books were going to be involved, I knew it was going to be awesome. Uh, but that really blew me away. Really exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Good luck to them. Our next guest is thriller writer Reese Hirsch. Reese is the author of novels like The Adversary, intrusion, and surveillance, which all take place in the world of cybersecurity. And now he's back with the start of a new series beginning with Black Nowhere, which continues in the world of cybercrimes, this time on the dark web. Reese is also a lawyer for a cybersecurity law firm, so he knows what he's talking about. And I got to say, I left our conversation more frightened about my own security online than I was before we talked with him. And I was already wearing a tinfoil hat. <laughs> That's what's inside this Dodger cap. Just all tinfoil. <laughs> My secret's out! Reese, you write what can, I think, safely be described as techno-thrillers. And in 2019, it seems like kind of writing any other kind of thriller is a little quaint. I mean, do you think that these days, does a thriller writer need to really embrace the tech-driven world that we live in? Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, <laughs> I sort of uh, you know balk a little bit, like you say, at the term techno thriller, uh, just because we're seeing that incorporated into all kinds of thriller plots because it's sort of in inescapable at this point. You know, particularly when you've got uh, elections being hacked and and that sort <laughs> of thing. Is there a world that you can write a thriller that doesn't address it other than a period piece anymore? 
Yeah, that's true. Well, it, I think anytime you write a technology thriller, inevitably it becomes a little bit of a uh, period piece because technology changes so fast. But, um, you know, in some ways, you know, you often hear mystery writers say, you know, I, I hate the technology because it makes it so easy, you know, to uh, bring people together and share information. But uh, I think on the flip side, with a lot of the thrillers I write, it, uh, they deal with kind of the modern fear that we are so connected, which uh, is good in a lot of ways, but also brings a lot of very bad things and bad people right to your doorstep and your computer. That's a good point. Yeah, this conversation is interesting because it reminds me of a pretty famous Kurt Vonnegut quote. Um, he said, I think that novels that leave out technology misrepresent life as badly as Victorians misrepresented life by leaving out sex. So from your perspective, what's the secret to writing good technology into a modern story versus hacky technology writing in a good story? Well, you know, I think uh, it, it still comes back to, uh, you know, to characters and uh, creating suspense. And, you know, the, the technology, I think, can facilitate that if you use it right. But ultimately, uh, you know, the best stories would work anyway as, as basic thrillers. But I've got to admit, uh, some of the MacGuffins and trappings of my particular plots you know, are drawn from technology. For example, I had clients that were being victimized by state-sponsored hackers. And so I, I wrote a book about that called Intrusion. And, uh, you know, this particular book is drawn from not my experience as a privacy lawyer, but a story that I was following really closely, which was the rise and fall of Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht, because that story just blew my mind. I was just fascinated by it. Lisa, the FBI agent at the center of Black Nowhere, she's sort of constantly fighting to be heard within the FBI, which is still very much a boys club, as you represent it. Did you do any research or talk to any female agents to, to get their on-the-ground experience with that? You know, I, I wasn't able to find my perfect female FBI source, but I did talk to some FBI agents. And when I first wrote it, I sort of imagined that you know, a geek like Lisa who specializes in cybercrime would have some difficulty being accepted in sort of the traditional, you know, uh, FBI. And later, you know, on in my research, I talked to some agents who said that is very much a real thing. You know, the FBI wants to be nimble and tech savvy, but in the end, they still sort of hang on to some of the old, you know, uh, idea of what an FBI agent should be. And so Lisa definitely grapples with that. She's not your traditional gun-toting FBI agent. Outside of the FBI, uh, as a male author, what's the trick to writing believable female protagonists? Well, uh, yeah, this was my first time writing a, a female protagonist. And um, I guess I've been married for just now 31 years. So... I've spent a lot of time with at least observing one woman very closely. <laughs> well, now, did, your wife, did your wife read Black Nowhere and look at Lisa and say, hey, stop writing about me? There's always a little bit of that. <laughs> but, but Lisa is not, is not my wife, Kathy, but, uh, but there is always uh, some theft that goes on there. This being your first female protagonist, was there any hesitancy on your part to write her as a female, or was she always a female in your estimation? 
Well, you know, I, I, I started, frankly, with the uh, Nate Fallon character, the villain, who I, I think is a, you know, a villain that I hope you, uh, you, you kind of want to like a little bit. And he was a complex character. And so I, I wanted to have an equally complex foil for him. And I, I just felt like this story was better with a, um, you know, a, a woman going up against him, particularly a woman who has to pose as a man online to win his confidence. I thought that kind of added another layer to the deception. And also, I didn't want to make it too much of a bro fest, you know, with the, you know, the male FBI agent bonding with, with Nate Fallon. I thought, yeah, they're, they're, they're very different people, Lisa and Nate. Oh, definitely. Well, a, a lot of the stuff that you write in this book is about the dark web, and it, and it sounds really scary what goes on there. And, but there's a tendency, I think, to brush some of that off and be like, oh, it's just a book. It's just fiction. But I, I mean, a lot of this stuff is terrifyingly real, is it not? Uh, definitely. You know, I as part of my research, I downloaded the Tor browser and poked around on the dark web a little bit. And, you know, it really is a lawless criminal place. I mean, it's also used for some beneficial purposes, like uh, dissidents can communicate on the dark web and, try, you know, try to stay out of the reach of authoritarian regimes. But, but uh, a lot of it is selling drugs and other illegal and nasty stuff. And so it's, it's a very dark place. Yeah. See, see that, Steve? It's research. It's all yeah. just... Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> you do work in cybersecurity at your day job for a life law firm, correct? Yes. Well, I'm a privacy and cybersecurity attorney, uh, so you can overstate you know, my wonkiness. You know, I, I don't have technical security know-how, but, but I definitely advise on a lot of these issues. Like a company has a big security breach, they'll come to me and and I may help them write that letter that goes to you saying that your your personal information has been compromised, Eric or Steve, and we're really sorry, but yeah, here's a five dollar gift card. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, okay, so it, that experience that you have from your day job, coupled with the research that you did for this latest book, I'm really curious about your personal opinion on the dark web. I mean, do you think it's something that can be reined in or is that genie sort of out of the bottle forever? Um, I think the genie is out of the bottle. I think law enforcement tries to sort of uh, explore that, uh, that area. And now a lot of the um, you know, consumer reporting agencies will do dark web searches of your identity to see if your social security number is popping up on the dark web. So it's they're shining some light in there, but I think it's always going to be a pretty lawless place. That's wow. horrifying. I'm yeah. scared. I'm, I'm more scared now than I was at the beginning of this conversation. Then my work here is done. <laughs> I, I can make one person more paranoid about technology than <laughs> my mission. I don't know if that's possible these days. Oh. Well, now, is there any chance that maybe for your next book, you're thinking in terms of like maybe a podcast thriller? Because, you know, we, we can tell you it is a cutthroat world out here. I can see that. I can clearly see that. Yeah. Can I write that? I'm writing that down. <laughs> there you go. So don't I have to sign an agreement? All ideas that arise out of this podcast belong to Eric and Steve. 
that's actually the plot of the first book is that, that <laughs> podcast hosts give you a killer idea for a book you write it and then we come after you i don't know dark web opium something <laughs> <laughs> then, then he has to murder us to keep the idea for himself see it writes itself guys there you go <laughs> In this world that you uh, that you live in around cybersecurity and, and the nefarious aspects of that, I mean, does that make you maybe a more naturally distrustful and suspicious person? Like, has it affected your day-to-day life? Yes, yes. I mean, definitely I see every day, you know, companies that are victimized by security breaches. Uh, it certainly makes me paranoid. You know, my wife, uh, you know, got me a... Christmas present. It's a, it's a wallet that has the insulation so scammers can't scan your credit card out of it. I thought, she gets me. <laughs> she totally gets me. I guess you have to ask, what is the most illegal thing that you personally bought on the dark web? I'm just looking, Steve. You know, I, I did not engage with the criminals myself. You know, <laughs> I'm just, just browsing. God, he's too smart for our traps, Eric. He's too smart. I, I just, I mean, it's all research for the book. So anything that you would buy, it, it's can still a tax write-off, right? That's right. Hey, you know, I've got to go back in there. <laughs> On a little dark web shopping spree, I guess. <laughs> Some heroin and a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Eric. Something tells me that dude's bought some stuff on the dark web. Oh, 100%. I'm glad we agreed on something. <laughs> it's always the first time. <laughs> well, Steve, that does it for this one. What did we learn today? Eric, Laura McHugh taught us there is still room to dream big even after you've been employee of the month at McDonald's. And Reese Hirsch taught us that we're all missing out on some great stuff on the dark web. We should all be shopping there. Seriously, that dude's bought some really weird stuff on the dark web, right? Yeah, he's he's on the government list or two or three. Does that mean wait, does that mean we are too for talking to him? Probably. Thank God I have this tinfoil hat. <laughs> <laughs> this show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and SW Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit SWLoudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>